all episodes of Let the Music Play podcast can be found in both iTunes and at AshtonGustafson.com. If you have enjoyed these conversations and they have brought joy, peace, and resilience to your life, we ask that you would go to iTunes and leave a review. Our hope is to share these voices and conversations with as many people as we can. And by leaving a review, you will be helping this light make its way into the world. Brian Zond is the author of several books, including Water to Wine, A Farewell to Mars, Beauty Will Save the World, and his latest, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, The Scandalous Truth of the Very Good News. Brian joins us in this episode of Let the Music Play as we discuss his challenging and thoughtful message to both within and outside the church on understanding and deciphering the true nature of God, love, and reality itself. Hi, I'm Ashton Gustafson, and welcome to Let the Music Play. I was—I just reached a place where Though my fascination for Jesus had never abated, I became convinced that the Christianity I knew was unworthy of the Christ that I was so deeply fascinated by. Hey everybody, Ashton Gustafson here and welcome back to another episode of Let the Music Play. I am absolutely thrilled and honored uh, and so excited today to introduce you guys to um, one of my favorite new authors. Now, not very often do books come my way uh, that I pick them up and I'm like, how have I not crossed paths with this guy yet? Um, but I got this book in the mail a couple weeks ago. It's going to be dropping soon. It's called Sinners in the Hand of a Loving God, The Scandalous Truth of the Very Good News. His name is Brian Zond. He's a pastor from Missouri. And guys, let me tell you, he is one of us. Uh, I think the things we are going to hear today, um, I think you're going to be moved. I think you're going to be blown away. I think you're going to be super excited to take this beauty out into the world uh, by whatever means you do. And so with that being said, Brian, thank you so much for joining us today. Ashton, thank you for inviting me to be with you. Well, I, I tell- like you said that that I'm one of you guys. And yes. It, it, you know, not all not all conversations are kind and considerate. Some are <laughs> adversarial, and I don't like that as, those as well. Well, so it's good to be where I'm welcomed. We are, uh, uh, as you put it, we're moving with the grain of love, my friend. And, uh, and so, um, you are definitely one of us and, and let me just say, before we get going here, um, I've taken some time to study your work after I got this book and I get tons of books sent to me. Um, Mm -hmm. but man, about page two, right after the beginning that Paul Young wrote, I was like, wow, we're going somewhere. We're going somewhere beautiful with this guy. Um, so thank you so much for joining us and the work you put into the world on behalf of all of us. Uh, super grateful for it. Thank you. So where do we begin? Uh, you know, for people that maybe haven't crossed paths with you before, uh, when you introduce yourself and the work you put into the world, where do you begin? Well, it's pretty simple. I've done pretty much one thing. I am the pastor, founder of Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri, and I've been doing that for coming on 36 years. Hmm. Uh, I'm 58, so we'll just take the mystery out of that. <laughs> I started officially when I was 22, is when we became a church. But really, uh, our church became a church out of a Jesus Movement era coffee house that I was 
running and had been running since I was 17. It was mostly a music venue, but, you know, there was teaching involved and it was becoming more and more church-like. And so I tell people I've been a pastor longer than I've been an adult. (laughs) (laughs) True. I don't think it's necessarily a good idea. I wouldn't recommend it, but that's how it played out for me. So St. Joseph, Missouri, Kansas City area, uh, almost 36 years as the pastor there. And in the last, let's see what what it's been. I guess it's been the last, I guess the last eight years, I've written six books uh, that have been published. And and so I've been writing quite a bit. And And I also traveled extremely ex- extensively. I just got done with 36 days of travel, speaking 40 times in Missouri, Minnesota, Colorado, California, and Australia. I'm just wow. back from Australia. I'm still kind of on Australia time, so it's, I'm a little bit jet-lagged. But... <laughs> wow, beautiful. So um, all these books, and by the way, the, the titles of some of these books are just beautiful. Um, and, and so the latest one that you've written and it releases very soon is sinners in the hand of a loving God. Um, and I, let's just get right into this. When you, the backstory to this book, I love because you kind of go back and you go, well, we need to first start and talk about how church and culture. And a lot of this was formed by this sermon that was given by Jonathan Edwards, Mm-hmm. Um, so where do we begin? Let's start there before we get into kind of how you came to writing this book. Yeah, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God is, yeah, I think there's no doubt about it, that it's the most influential and I would also say the most famous sermon in American history, preached by Jonathan Edwards in 1741. It is uh, a sermon that has maintained currency, if for no other reason, that for some strange reason it shows up again and again in creative writing classes in high school as an example of descriptive writing. Here, I've got a little passage of it right here. Let me, let me flip to it. Uh, the most famous passage in this sermon that Edwards preached in 1741 as part of the Great Awakening is the, is the spider passage, and it goes like this. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath toward you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear than to have to bear you in his sight. You are 10,000 times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. Whoa! (laughs) And uh, the sermon goes on and on and on like that. I suppose if you read it out loud, it would take 30 minutes or so, something like that. And um, that sermon deeply shaped the American religious imagination of a God who is angry, violent and retributive towards sinners, which in Calvin's system or Edward's system is everybody, right. uh, is deserving of eternal conscious torment. And then what you get is a way to avoid that uh, through Jesus, so that in their system, Jesus saves us from God. 
And I was shaped by that system. In fact, as a young pastor, maybe about 24, 25 years old, I was fascinated by these revivalists, and including Jonathan Edwards. And at one point, I fashioned my own little homemade copy of Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I still have it to this day. And I, I made photocopies from a larger work of Edwards' collected, collected writings. And I, you know, with a photocopier and all, I fashioned it into this little booklet that I made my homemade copy of with a big, heavy magic marker I wrote on the front of it, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and Angry God's in all caps. And I memorized uh, portions of this sermon. I put it in my arsenal to use it in what I would describe as evangelism by terrorism. Um, and, and, and that's when you really do kind of engage in this good cop, bad cop routine. You you portray God as deeply offended and potential of eternal anger toward you. And then Jesus steps in as the good cop to save you from that. Um, I guess the argument is it gets results, and maybe it does. I mean, right. it did for and it did for me to a certain extent, depending on what you're looking for. But the deeper and more important question is, is it true? Is God really angry, violent, and retributive? I know you can paint portraits of God like that, and you can use the Bible to do it, but still, is it true? And so this is what the book's about. And so walk me through the process of this being in your teaching arsenal, (laughs) like this, this even shaping some of your thinking, and then ultimately you going, whoa, 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 whoa. No, this is, this is, yeah, this I mean, is not I, what we I see. I suppose I was a product of my own formation, uh, and that is that I really, I was always fascinated by Jesus. That's what captured me as a teenager when I had a very dramatic conversion. And overnight went from being the high school Led Zeppelin freak to being the high school Jesus freak. Mm-hmm. So Jesus was always at the center of my faith. And that's beautiful. That's wonderful. That's something that hasn't changed, but has deepened and developed over the decades. But uh, I also was formed in some very unhealthy ways where, in fact, I saw that the primary thing that we needed to be saved from was from God. God's violent, eternal wrath towards sinners, and sinners is defined as everybody. Um, that we all deserve what Christ endured on the cross, is the way it would say. Which, which means, if you see a five-year-old girl, you say, that girl, you know what? She deserves to be nailed to a tree and tortured to death. Mm-hmm. Now, I understand how you can paint yourself into a corner with a theological system where you say such things, but, well, that's what had happened. Right. And somehow I had been sucked into that system, probably had never really thought it out. I just took it as, quote, gospel truth that what we really need to be saved from is God, and Jesus is the one that saves us from God. And so I really was something of a hell, fire, and brimstone preacher. Um, not culturally, you know, I think culturally I was, you know, sophisticated, read good books, listened to good music, but theologically pretty primitive. And that's just how I understood the gospel. And so if I could talk to you about, you know, hell, how hot hell is, and... <laughs> Hell is pretty long time, and you, you don't want to go there. And then I present Jesus as the way out of that. Then you, you you get people responding to Jesus. But the question is, 
have you maligned the character of the father of Jesus in doing so? Right. And I eventually, um, when I, in, a, in a previous book, and it shows up in one form or another probably in all of my books, but I went through a very profound spiritual transformation when I was 45, 13 years ago. I was born again again. It was my second conversion. And I won't spend a lot of time rehearsing that. I talk about it in detail in my book, Water to Wine. But um, I, was, I just reached a place where, though my fascination for Jesus had never abated, I became convinced that the Christianity I knew was unworthy of the Christ that I was so deeply fascinated by. It seemed weak and thin. And uh, I began to profoundly rethink some things, began to read much better theology. And that led to me rethinking a whole host of subjects, including some of which I address in Sinners in the Hands of Loving God, which would include things like, what about the wrath of God? What about Old Testament violence? What about the cross? Is that where God uses violence so that he can gain the capital to, to forgive us. What about hell? Does God operate an eternal torture chamber? What about the book of Revelation? At the end, does Jesus just say, forget the Sermon on the Mount, I'm going to kill 200 million people? And so yeah. those are all things that I had to rethink. And uh, the unifying factor in sinners in the hands of loving God is continually returning to the question, is God, in fact, angry, violent, and retributive? Right. I know that there is a way to read the Bible that says yes. I know how to do that. I did it skillfully for several decades. So I know it can be done. It's just I simply no longer believe it's true. And so that's what the book's about. And you write, um, God has a face and it looks like Jesus. So when, how do you respond to those people that believe in this God of wrath due to the explanation and the description that, that we see at times in the Old Testament. Because I know that's the first, that's the first, whoa, 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 Ashton, where are you going with this? What about the Old Testament? Where, how, do you, how do you address that? Uh, in two chapters. <laughs> let's, let's see if I can, uh, okay, what about the Old Testament? Where do we start with the Old Testament? I think I would say this. The Old Testament is the inspired telling of Israel's story as they come to know the living God. But it is a journey, and you have to stay with the story yes. and yes. arrive at the— You know, so other people have noted that the Old Testament really is a book in search of an ending. Hmm. And for those of us that confess that Jesus is— the Jewish Messiah, we believe that Jesus is the end to which the Old Testament is longing to get to, but never completely arrives. Um, so I think it's important to see that there, the Old Testament is not univocal. I'll give you an example. If we ask the Old Testament, hey, Old Testament, does God require ritual blood sacrifice? Well, it depends on who you ask. If you ask the Torah, if you ask the priests, the answer is an unequivocal, yes, God requires sacrifice. And I can show you passages in the Torah, in Leviticus, where it says that sin offering and sacrifice for sin, speaking of ritual blood sacrifice, are required day by day. But that is not the consistent position of the Old Testament, because as time rolls on, 
and you begin to arrive with the psalmists and the prophets, suddenly you have uh, a rethinking beginning to emerge. In Psalm 40, the psalmist says, blood sacrifice and burnt offering for sin you have not required. And then later, Hosea, speaking in the name of Yahweh, says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So you, you see that the Old Testament itself is grappling with these issues and not always consistent. And so um, it's Jesus that is the final arbiter of Scripture for us. That's why in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says things like, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a teeth. But I say unto you, do not resist the one who is evil. Turn the other cheek. Love your enemies. Um, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew adds this commentary. They were astounded at his teaching, for he spoke as one who had authority. Well, he's, Matthew isn't commenting on Jesus' delivery, that he was full of self-confidence. Rather, he spoke as one who had enough authority that he could countermand aspects of the Old Testament. Right. right. I mean, let's not fail to notice how deeply radical it is for a Jew to say to a Jewish audience, you've heard it said, and then quotes from the Torah, and then adds, but I say unto you. (laughs) You I think you wrote in the book, that's like a preacher walking up today and saying, hey, the Bible says, but I'm telling you this. Yeah, and someone makes that claim, you're going to have to say, well, who is this? You're going to have to (laughs) really say, who is this? And see, it's why Rabbi Jacob Neusner, a thoroughly wonderful and brilliant rabbi, by the way, says, uh, even though I admire Jesus, uh, in the end, I have to reject the Sermon on the Mount because only God has the authority to ask of me what Jesus requires in the Sermon on the Mount, to which a believer will say, yes, precisely. And that's why we confess that Jesus is, in fact, the Word of God made flesh. Um But the Old Testament is deeply problematic. Let me give you another example. I think this one's not in the book, but I can do this off the top of my head. Um, Because I just did this. I I did this both in our youth camp and in a uh, graduate-level seminary class. And I really didn't change it, (laughs) which I think is interesting. Uh, Exodus 21, verses 20 and 21 say this. When a slave owner beats a slave with a rod, male or female, and the slave dies immediately, there shall be punishment. But if the slave lives a day or two, there shall be no punishment, for the slave is the owner's property. (laughs) All right, the the scripture says, and this is the chapter right after the Ten Commandments. The chapter said the, the text says you got a slave owner. He's angry at a slave. He takes a rod, male or female, doesn't matter. We'll make it female. And the slave owner beats a female slave to death with a rod. Uh, he should be punished in some way, maybe fined or something else. But if this slave owner beats this female slave with a rod, She falls unconscious, but doesn't die, lives a day or two, and then dies. The the scripture says there shall be no punishment for the slave is the owner's property. So I read that text to our young people, and I ask them, "Mm, 
How many of you disagree with that? <laughs> and kind of sheepishly, slowly, every single one of those teenagers raised their hand. So I point to one of them and I say, so you disagree with the Bible? You know, and they're very nervous at this point. But they say, well, yeah, I guess. And I say, good, and you should. And then I followed up with this. How many of you know that slavery is absolutely, categorically, a profound moral evil? That it's not only a sin, it is a grave and grievous sin for which there is no justification. Everybody raises their hand. And I say, well, do you realize then at least in the realm of the institution of slavery, you have a superior moral vision than the Bible? And they should, and they do. And see, now we're bumping up against the limitations of Scripture. I love the Bible. I love the Scriptures. I am rooted in the Scriptures. I have written 3,326 sermons from the Scriptures. Uh, I read them every day. I pray them every day. But I make a distinction between the Christian faith as this living tree and the soil of Scripture when it in which it's rooted. In other words, uh, you cannot separate Christian faith from the soil of Scripture, but there is a difference between the tree that is the living faith and the soil that is the Scripture. S to say it another way, uh, Christianity is not merely the Bible. Yes, Christianity is rooted in, the, in scriptural revelation, but it's not simply the same thing. Because then we run up against the embarrassing fact that the Bible in neither the Old Testament nor the New Testament appears to have any kind of vision for the absolute abolition of the institution of slavery. Even when you get into the New Testament, you have Paul writing twice, slaves obey your masters. And in Ephesians, it adds, with fear and trembling. So what do we do? If we are committed to the Bible being the end and perfect revelation of God, we're stuck with problems like that without a clear denunciation of the moral evil that is slavery. On the other hand, if we allow Scripture to do what Scripture does best, and that is point us to Jesus, it's from Jesus that we discern a moral trajectory that leads us in the direction that will eventually cause us to wake up and say, hey, wait a minute, in the name of Christ and in the light of Christ, slavery must be denounced as a profound moral evil, and we must all work together for its abolition. And so there you're seeing the limits of Scripture that Christ himself transcends. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, the word became flesh. That's, mm -hmm. when, that's when everything shifted. Um, so, okay, as we continue this, because I know people continue to, when you start having this conversation of reframing the wrath of God, mm -hmm. what, what is the origin of the idea that God required the violent death of his son in order to satisfy his honor and pay off justice. Like, what's wrong with that idea that God required the crucifixion of Jesus? First of all, sacrifice, I think, is best understood in the light of the work of Rene Girard. That is, that sacrifice is always translated or, 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 or traced back to human sacrifice. Right. That in yeah. primitive human culture, the way that human societies found to prevent all against all violence was to take their anger, their rage, their insecurity, their fears, and project it upon one scapegoat victim. 
which brought peace and cohesion to the community for a time, although it had to be repeated. And this is the origin of sacrificial religion. Later on, it gets mitigated to animal sacrifice. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's the origin of it. Uh, you see Jesus hinting at these things in John chapter 8, when he talks about how if, if the Judean disciples really want to be his disciples, they're going to have to abide in his word, and they'll know the truth, and the truth will set them free. And the truth is that they are addicted to the system of collective murder. But they push back and say, well, you know, uh, no, we're free, and we're, and we're the children of Abraham. And he says, well, not really. You're really children of your father, the devil, the Satan, the accuser. Uh, if, you were the, if you were the sons and daughters of Abraham, you would do what Abraham did. And what does Abraham do? Well, Abraham puts down the knife and doesn't sacrifice his son. So that if Abraham is the father of monotheism, he's also the father of the abolition of human sacrifice. Uh, you'll notice that John 8 opens and closes with, attempting stone, with attempted stonings. Uh, first, there's the attempted stoning of the woman caught in adultery, which is an interesting story. Um, they, they bring this woman to Jesus, caught in adultery, and they say, hey, Jesus, in the Bible, Moses says to stone such women, and it does. What do you say, Rabbi? And Jesus at first ignores them, writes in the dust, they persist. Then he says, well, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. It's a very interesting move that Jesus makes. Um, stoning is the sanctioned means of execution for certain kinds of sinners in the Torah. But why stoning? Stoning isn't necessarily a very efficient way of killing another human being, but it has this advantage. It allows the entire community to participate, and it then also allows the individual to exonerate themselves and say, well, I didn't kill him. I just threw one stone. Wow. I've and, never, I've, I've never connected those dots. And you know, all kinds of sociologists understand that people will do in a mob what they won't do as an individual. Wow. There is the demonic nature of the mentality of the mob, and that's what stoning uh, relies upon. That people, as a mob, will do what they wouldn't do as an individual. Well, Jesus, with his brilliant move, breaks that demonic spell. And he requires them to act as individuals. When he asks the question, or he, he proposes, let the one without sin cast the first stone. So in other words, somebody has to act as an individual first. And they have to act as an individual after an internal reflection on their own moral quality. Hmm. Well, this breaks the spell, and beginning from the oldest down to the youngest, they no longer can participate in the demonic mob. They say, no, I'm not sinless. I'm not without blame. I can't participate in that. And then Jesus goes into his long discourse in John 8 and this dispute with these Judean disciples. And Jesus keeps bringing up the subject of murder and killing as, and, and collective killing as their addiction to the way of the Satan. And by the end of the chapter, now they want to stone Jesus. All right, so... So that has something to do with sacrifice. But the idea that we're going to be so explicit about the cross and say, well, this was a payment, a kind of legal payment to God, it has a very definite origin. Uh, for one thing, the eastern side of the church, and, you know, uh, here in the West, by the West I mean Catholic, Protestant, uh, we are woefully ignorant 
of this entire rich tradition that is the other half of Christianity, known as Eastern Orthodoxy. Eastern Orthodoxy has never um, endorsed the idea that God required the violent death of his son in order to appease his wrath and balance the scales of justice, etc. This first really begins to emerge with Anselm, Bishop Anselm, uh, a thousand years ago, who is operating from the medieval concept of offended honor. And so in a feudal society with very rigid class distinction, if a, if a noble was insulted by a serf, uh, the noble's honor had been impugned, but the noble's honor could not be regained by punishing a serf because the serf is so far below the class of the noble. And so what the noble would have to do is find some other nobleman upon which to expend his rage and thus satisfy his wrath. Uh, so Anselm works with that idea that human beings have offended the honor of God. But the problem is there's nobody that belongs to the same class of God to satisfy God's offended honor. So Jesus becomes a human being, God becomes man, so that the wrath of God can be expended upon Jesus and satisfy his honor. Later with Calvin, things have changed, where it's about 500 years later, and Calvin is thinking a little bit more in terms of both legal and economic metaphors, that it's actually some kind of payment or a satisfaction of justice. The problem with that is, is you have the idea that God is inclined to forgive, but cannot forgive because justice must be satisfied, by which we mean violent retributive justice. There are numerous problems with that, not the least of which is the idea that God is in fact some penultimate deity because over God is justice. As if God is saying, look, human race, uh, I'm loving and I would love to forgive you, but I can't. I've got to satisfy justice, and she's very demanding, and she's going to require blood, and it's going to have to be blood shed violently by torture, and until that happens, I can't satisfy justice. The, the, the notion that God can't just forgive is, in fact, absurd. Of course God can just forgive. That's what forgiveness is. The moment you start having payment involved, that's not forgiveness. That's mm-hmm. payment. Hmm. The scripture does use the language that Christ has purchased us with his blood. And we can talk about that. But what the scripture doesn't say is that Christ purchased forgiveness on God's behalf. In other words, the cross is not what God inflicts upon Jesus in order to forgive. The cross is what God in Christ endures as he forgives. Wow. God did not demand the death of Jesus. We did. No, we did. Yeah. We did. Now, yeah. now God knows, I mean, God knows that this is going to happen. God knows that when his son is sent into a system that is addicted to violent sacrifice as the organizing principle of civilization, that Jesus is going to become a victim of this. But it doesn't take omniscience to know that. Plato knew that. 350 years before Christ, Plato is engaging in a thought experiment about what would happen if a perfect being came among us, a perfect person, a perfectly innocent man. And Pilate says, we would scourge him, we would spit upon him, we would crucify him. 
And there's Pilate being, I mean, Plato being highly prophetic about what would happen when the sinless Son of God came among us. Jesus is a sacrifice in the sense that he sacrifices his life in order to rescue us from the sin of sacrificing other victims. He's a sacrifice, but it's a sacrifice that we demand, not what God demands. Hmm. God is not gaining the capacity to forgive through Jesus. God is forgiving love, and that's demonstrated at the cross. Christ goes down into death in order to overcome death by death. Christ enters death in order to defeat it from the inside. Christ enters into death in order to open the door to eternal life to the other side. But the ones that sent him into death by violence was uh, human civilization built around violent power. Another way we might approach it, Ashton, is to ask ourselves, where do we see God on Good Friday? Do we see God in Caiaphas requiring a sacrificial scapegoat? Do we see God in Pilate requiring a violent execution in order to preserve the empire? No. On Good Friday, we see God in Christ. So that when Christ upon the cross prays, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, the Father is not asking the Son to do something he's not inclined to do. We might imagine the Father saying, of course, Son, that's what we do. We forgive. I think my all-time favorite theological sentence is from Hans Urs von Balthasar, who says, being disguised under the disfigurement of an ugly crucifixion and death, Christ upon the cross is paradoxically the clearest revelation of who God is. In other words, at the cross, we discover a God who would rather die than kill his enemies. Can you repeat that? At the cross, we discover a God who would rather die than kill his enemies. Wow. Wow. And, and what I'm saying, I just I wanna, I want our listeners to really be clear about this. Yeah. On the one hand, I realize that for many, if not most of the listeners, this will sound radical, novel, new, because it may in fact be new to them. But what I am saying is simply orthodox soteriology. It's the orthodox understanding of salvation that's been around for 2,000 years. So, um, you know, my orthodox theologian friends would sort of shrug and go, yep, that's what we've always been teaching. Uh, <laughs> but in the West, it hasn't been the case. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, wow. Okay, let's keep this going. I'm loving this. Um, so one of the things that you talk about is uh, this grain of love, like mm. moving with the grain of love. Like I, I, man, when I read that part of the book, I, was, I told my wife, I was like, listen to this. Um, and you, you kind of give this picture of, look, the wrath of God is what we may call when we move against the grain of love. Like we will, I think you write, suffer the shards of self-inflicted suffering when we yes. live against the grain of love. So Jesus shows up. He's preaching good news that is nonviolent. He, he's preaching a message of um, unity, of transformation, uh, of, of beauty, of, uh, you know, on and on and on. And then it, it's like this grain of love saying, this is the way, this is the truth, this is the life. And, and maybe just perhaps when we act against those things, when we swim against the grain of love, 
that's when people start calling something the wrath of God. You want to break that down because I feel like I'm not doing a great job of it. Yeah, the wrath of God is a biblical, scriptural metaphor. This is what the church fathers consistently taught. Uh, the church fathers universally were deeply committed to the impassibility of God. That is that God is not moved by emotions and feelings. God doesn't lose his temper, even though uh, the Bible depicts moments when God, in fact, acts that way. But the Bible also depicts God as being asleep and having to be awakened. And so we understand, okay, that's a metaphor. That's not a literal theological statement about the nature of God. Um, if we ask the question, why is there something instead of nothing? Uh, those of us that believe are convinced that there is only one rational philosophical answer, and that is in the beginning God created. The deeper question, though, might be, why does God bother? You know, why? Well, it's, it's from no need that God has. I think the only answer that I'm capable of beginning to formulate is that God is love seeking self-expression. And so the universe itself comes forth from the love of God. Yeah, yeah. You might think of the Big Bang as an eruption of God's love. Let's go. And everything that, and, and it comes forth. I mean, what is light? Light is the love of God in the form of photons. What is water? A liquid expression of the love of God. What is a mountain? The love of God in granite. What is a tree? God's love growing up from the ground. We can just go on and on. Now, now, authentic freedom allows for many other things as well, everything from cancer cells to atomic bombs. But in the end, it's love that wins, that love has the final say. Yeah. So if, if creation itself is the gratuitous gift of a God who is love, this determines the grain of the universe. That if we go in the direction of loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength by loving our neighbor as ourselves, then we flow in the general direction of healing and restoration, human flourishing and well-being. But the moment we begin to move in a prolonged fashion against that grain, and we begin to move in the direction of greed, selfishness, violence, harming others, that's when we are going against the grain of the universe that is love, and we suffer the shards of self-inflicted suffering, which we can call the wrath of God. The Bible does. But upon deeper exploration, we see we are more punished by our sin than for our sin. I'll give you an example from Psalm 7. The psalmist is uh, creating this wonderful hymn, meditation, and prayer. And toward the end, the psalmist writes, God is a righteous judge. God sits in judgment every day. If they will not repent, God will wet his sword. He will bend his bow and make it ready. He has prepared his weapons of death. He makes his arrows shafts of fire. So you get the idea from that passage, because God is presented as a judge who has a sword with bows and arrows, and he's putting arrows upon the bow, and he has weapons of death, and his arrows are shafts of fire. We see God portrayed as is directly visiting violent punishment upon sinners. But that's not where the psalm ends. If we continue going, it, it goes like this. Look at those who are in labor with wickedness, who conceive evil and give birth to a lie. They dig a pit and make it deep 
and fall into the hole that they have made. Their malice turns back upon their own head. Their violence falls on their own scalp. So for three verses, the psalmist is depicting in metaphor, God is deploying actual weapons against sinners. But then he switches and says, well, no, here's what's really happening. Sinners are digging pits that they themselves fall into and their violence boomerangs back upon their own scalp. There's just, that's the nature of the use of violence. It's, it's, it has a boomerang effect. It may indeed harm many, many others as it flies from our hand, but given enough time, it circles back around and we suffer from our own violence. So I, I, think, I think that's one way of thinking about the wrath of God. Another way we might say it is that the wrath of God is divine consent to our own rebellious will or divine consent to the consequences of our own rebellious will. Hmm. So if someone says, well, you, you don't believe in the wrath of God, I say, well, yeah, I believe in the wrath of God. Well, I don't believe that God himself, though, is actually violent, angry, and retributive. See, human beings, for whatever reason, and I suppose for lots of reasons, are deeply addicted to the idea of retributive justice. Right. That is justice in the form of punishment. That's right. But justice that is merely punishment does nothing to ultimately set the world right. The only kind of justice that the, that the father of Jesus is ultimately committed to is that which sets the world's right, that which sets the world right. Punishment for the sake of punishment accomplishes nothing. Do now, we, it, 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 may, it may cause you and I to feel good, but I think that's appealing to something base and vile within us that is not present within the heart of the father. And so a lot of people maybe have a little confusion of what you and I are talking about here, this conversation of retributive justice versus restorative justice. You want to walk with that? Well, the I, retribution is simply vengeance. It's simply, I will inflict harm upon someone because they have done that which is evil. I understand the inclination. I also know it doesn't proceed from love. Now, I'm not talking about a love, though, that is uh, cheap. I'm not talking about a love that is blind. I, I, I understand that if, even if we're thinking within, a, within human society, um, there are violent actors that need to be removed from society lest they hurt others. But here's an example. The death penalty is purely retributive. Yeah. We, are, we are well capable in our society of segregating violent criminals in a way that they are no longer a threat to the wider society. Uh, the idea that they need to be punished through death simply is a very vile and base lust for revenge. It does nothing to set the world right. Whatever justice God is committed to, it is ultimately moving in the direction of the restoration of all things, including the restoration of sinners, with the wider community. Um, this is the nature of the love of God, to move toward restoration. I mean, who is being satisfied? Who is God satisfied by uh, inflicting torture and suffering and harm and violence upon a sinner? Do we actually believe that, okay, God said, okay, now I feel better. I mean, right. that is creating God in our own image and in our worst image. Um, no. Sin will carry its own punishment. I promise you that. I'm not talking about people getting away with anything. 
Uh, we're going we're gonna to face our sins. We're going to deal with the consequences. We're going to face them honestly in the light of Christ. And they must be repented of and addressed. And sometimes restoration in the form of, um, you know, making things right with those around us is required. But simply inflicting harm upon another, the idea that that satisfies the divine justice uh, doesn't come from the heart of God. It comes from our own uh, blighted heart of lusting for revenge. And it's just not present in the heart of God. Yeah. So, in other words, uh, think about the parable of the prodigal son. Here we have uh, the son returning and being restored to the father without punishment. I mean, the he prodigal son has already been punished. He's been punished by his own yeah. recklessness. His own prodigal ways have punished him. He's been in the pig pen. Uh, he comes back, and the only thing that the father understands as justice is restoring the son to the proper relationship with mm. the father. Um, and, of course, the point of that parable is not really the story of the younger brother, but the story of the older brother, yeah. who resents the fact that the father is this gratuitous in his grace, <laughs> that he allows the son to be fully restored without there being further punishment. And because of this, the elder son has now exiled himself in the outer darkness, weeping and gnashing teeth, while there's a party going on with music and song and drink and dancing within the father's house, the father, in fact, leaves the party to go to the elder son and implores him to come in, be reconciled with his brother, and join in the party and participate in the celebration. But the parable itself is left unfinished. I mean, because how the parable is going to end is up to the hearers. Will they... Will they rejoice in the fact that God is, in fact, the truly prodigal one? That is the wasteful one, the, the one that says, the, the one who, ex, who spends extravagantly isn't the son who goes and wastes the father's wealth on the far country. The one who, who spends extravagantly is the father himself, who mm. spends his grace upon all who will return to him, and they are welcomed joyfully. If you can accept that about God, then you too can participate in the party. But if you say, no, there must be punishment, I will not be content until people suffer and are further punished, then you exile yourself into the outer darkness, and the party goes on without you. Did you say that the way the parable, the, the way the parable ends depends on how the hearers hear it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because it, yeah. It, the ending is up to those that hear. Yeah. That's good. That's good. That's really good. Oh, man. This is awesome. Um, so, yeah, where do we go next? So we've, we've walked through the wrath of God in the Old Testament. We've walked through kind of the crucifixion and this idea to pay off justice. Um, I think in there somewhere, just to riff off that, you talked about really the, the fear of God being the wisdom of, mm -hmm. of not acting against the grain of love. Um, speak on that. I, the Bible commends the fear of God, and I do too, as the beginning point of which we really are serious about both God and God's gift of life. Uh, God must be 
factored into the equation. We need to be serious about God. We need to understand that life itself is this gift from God. And to be serious about that, I think, is is the fear of God. And to recognize that there are consequences of going against the grain of love. That's the fear of God. That is not to be equated, though, with a paranoid, psychotic dread that God, in fact, is malevolent and intends us evil. And if we um, mess up, that God is potentially going to torture us forever. I, I, I think that is the kind of fear that is entirely unhealthy. I had the, the marvelous good fortune of being raised by a very kind and wise father. He was a judge. He was beloved and esteemed in our community. He was the kind of judge that when he passed away back in 2009, uh, at his funeral, a man came up to me and said, your father sent me to prison for armed robbery. And I'm here today to honor him because he always dealt with me with as much mercy and kindness as the law would allow. And he always treated me as a human being and gave me dignity. Uh, so that's the kind of man he was. So I was raised by, by a very wise and kind man. Uh, as a child, I, I, I would say, you know, I, I held him in awe and high esteem. And you could use the word fear. I think that's fine to say that there was a, a kind of fear of my father, but never once did I suppose that my father would intend me harm. Yeah, yeah. I never went to, you know, maybe my dad will hurt me. Now, I understand that not everybody is as fortunate as I was, and maybe you grew up with an abusive, alcoholic father who would, you know, stumble in at 2 in the morning and beat you. I'm just saying that that's not what God is like. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, there's this awe for God. There's a seriousness about God. There's this seriousness about life. There's an understanding that the way that God has arranged the universe has consequences. I understand all of that. That's the fear of God, but I'm not afraid of God. And if the fear of God is the place to begin, because sometimes people just need to get serious about life and about God and all of that, it's not the place to end. You know, the Apostle John says, perfect love casts out all fear. And so... If it looks like God is changing, and people have noticed this, you know, you see certain depictions of God in the Old Testament that aren't entirely consistent with what we see revealed in Jesus. I mean, I may be making it a little bit too simple, but I think people understand what I'm saying. Well, you have to ask yourself, uh, what, who actually is changing here? Um, if we think about the natural universe, perhaps the most obvious fact is that the sun rises in the east, travels through the heavens, and sets in the west, and it happens every day. Except none of it's true. <laughs> the motion that we appear to see with the sun is, in fact, our own motion. Yeah. We're, and to this day, it amazes me that anybody ever figured that out. <laughs> Can you imagine the first guy that said, you know, I've been thinking. <laughs> That's and I good, don't though. think the sun is moving. Yeah. I yeah. think we're moving. Yeah. And, of course, they called him a heretic and burned him at a stake, probably. Yeah. But... but the, the, the apparent change of God over time through the progress of the Scripture is not the change of God. Rather, it's a diary of our own progress. Our own We're waking up. Movement. We're the one. So we can go back just for a second to the Old Testament. I'd, I'd like to say, again, the Old Testament is the inspired, 
telling of Israel's story as they come to know the living God. But along the way, inevitable assumptions are made. But if you stay on the journey, you'll eventually eventually arrive at Jesus, who is the Word of God made flesh, the perfect icon of God, the perfect representation of who God is. Wow. Like Rohr says, you know, the Word became flesh. That didn't happen so God's mind would change about us. It came so that our minds may change about Him. Yeah, rock on. Amen. Yeah. yeah. Whew, let's go. Well, then let's just keep this going. Let's talk Book of Revelation, because that's a whole nother box to open up. Um, and, and you wrote, I think, you know, the prophetic critique of civil religion, uh, when you mm-hmm. kind of talk about the Book of Revelation, for people that immediately go doom and gloom, um, left behind, uh, apocalypse, um, let's talk metaphor. Let's talk um, image for a second. Let's talk the human tendency, as you say, to literize these angry metaphors. Um, where do you begin with so many people that have um, kind of just said, oh, well, this is what the book of Revelation is and means and it's going to happen? Yeah, the, the book of Revelation has a long, tragic history of being abused in the hands of unskilled and unscrupulous interpreters. Um, That's very tactfully said. (laughs) The book of Revelation is a fantastic book. And in one sense, I think it is as timely a book in the Bible for Christians living in the present American context as any book, but we're going to have to rescue it from the abuse that it suffered. Let's begin this way. The book of Revelation is employing a common-for-its-time genre of literature known as Jewish apocalyptic literature. It is written by John the Revelator, who is almost certainly not to be confused with John, the son of Zebedee, one of the twelve disciples. John was as common a name then as it is now. Rather, John is somehow associated, maybe he's the founding pastor, bishop, or at least a traveling prophet among the seven churches that get mentioned early in the letter, uh, in in the book of Revelation. And John is writing probably around the end of the first century. He has gotten, he, he has run afoul of the Roman government to some extent, and apparently has been exiled to Patmos. And what he writes is this crazy, wild, fantastical, prophetic critique of the Roman Empire, where he uses, he just piles image upon image upon image, interestingly, almost all of which are not original. He's borrowing most of them from uh, from the Old Testament, but but he combines them in different ways and new ways, and he magnifies them. And what he is doing is in kind of a thinly disguised way, he's lampooning the Roman Empire, which he depicts as a beast and as a drunken woman and as a dragon. He's lampooning the Roman Empire and showing how Christ triumphs over that. And Christ is depicted in a lot of different ways, including most frequently a lamb, a lamb with seven eyes and seven horns, a little lamb, 
a lamb that has been slain. It's been slaughtered. Its throat has been cut. It's, it's ready to be, you know, it's, it's at the butcher shop, and yet it's alive. I mean, these are crazy images. Here's what the reader needs to keep in mind. The book of Revelation is all in symbol, all of it. You cannot go through the book of Revelation and pick and choose and say, well, I think, you know, let's see now. Jesus is not literally a lamb with seven eyes, seven heads, and a slit throat. But I do think Jesus is literally going to come back on a flying white horse with a sword in his mouth and kill 200 million. No, you don't get to do that. It's all symbol. In one sense, one way of thinking about the book of Revelation is that it is an enormously elaborate political cartoon. Hmm. Which uses symbols. So, for example, if you see today a drawing, you know, political cartoons began in the newspapers, but we don't have those anymore. They're now memes on the internet. Same thing. Uh, if you see a, a political cartoon that depicts a donkey wearing boxing gloves and and uh, boxing trunks, and an elephant also wearing boxing trunks and boxing gloves, and they're standing on their hind legs, and they're battling one another in a ring. All, you, know, you, you know, an American in the contemporary situation has no problem going, okay, this is some sort of commentary about the fractious relationship between Democrats and Republicans. You yeah. get it right away. Yeah. Uh, but now imagine a person 2,000 years from now who has virtually no knowledge of American political history of the late 20th, early 21st century. They just don't know about that. They don't speak English. Um, and there's 2,000 years removed from us and them. And they see that image. What are the odds that they're going to interpret it correctly? <laughs> Zero. Now, they, they, may they may impose some meaning upon it. Yeah. But it won't be the correct meaning. So that's a little bit of the challenge we have with the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is not about 21st century geopolitical events. Now, it's for us today, but it's not about us. It is John's prophetic critique of the Roman Empire showing how the nonviolent Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God does triumph over the beasts of empire. As such, it is a critique of all empires and contemporary civil religion. Civil religion is uh, religious patriotism. It's where the true object of worship is, in fact, the nation itself, but that is somewhat obscured because people might too readily recognize that as idolatrous. And so they instead talk about how God has raised up. And, you know, in, in our context, people say, well, you know, God raised up America, to which I say, no, God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus is Lord. Uh, God is not working through the instrument of geopolitical nations with nuclear arms to bring about his peaceable kingdom on earth. God works through those that follow Jesus as the Lamb. If you can learn to read the book of Revelation in that light, uh, then it becomes highly relevant and speaks to us in a very powerful way. But if you literalize the metaphors and begin to imagine that in the end Jesus Christ himself is going to employ violent means, then we begin to think, well, you know, then that must give us license and warrant to do the same. No, Jesus in Revelation 19 is depicted as riding upon uh, a white horse. He has a sword, but it's not in his hand, it's in his mouth. Uh, John, in fact, tells you that he has a name written on him. It's like in a political cartoon with, when the cartoonist is worried that you're not going to get it. So he just writes on there what this represents. He writes on it and says, the word of God. Okay, that's, it's written on him, word of God. And that doesn't and, mean the Bible. 
Right. It, no, Jesus, <laughs> is what God, Jesus is what God has to say. And the sword is not in his hand, it's in his mouth. And he goes forth and he conquers. And, and before he goes into the battle, his, his robe is drenched in blood, his own blood. Mm. I see myself asking, I am one that has been slain by the sword that comes from the mouth of Jesus and has been raised to newness of life in him. I certainly don't read the book of Revelation as I, I no more literalize Jesus coming back on a flying white horse to kill people than I would literalize that up out of the ocean someday is going to come a Godzilla monster with seven heads and ten horns and all of that business. Yep. I mean, you, you can't pick and choose. You can't say, well, this is literal, this is symbol. No, it's all symbol, and it's all symbol that is critiquing the Roman Empire and thus all empires, and in a very clever and almost dark, macabre, humorous way, showing how ultimately the beasts of empire are conquered by the nonviolent, co-suffering love of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Why, why do we in the West have this... I don't want to say lack of understanding, but lack of giving poetry and metaphor a chance to communicate with us. Is it because we're so Excel spreadsheet, the, the word, the paper says, the answer is? What... Yeah, I, I, think, I think if we fail to recognize how much artistry and literary skill, poetry is in the composition of the Bible, then we we end up making a wrong-headed enlightenment move and trying to make the Bible a pure history or a pure uh, you know, scientific book, a fact book, when actually it's far more creative than that. Yeah, yeah, we need yes. to allow it to be that way. Um, we also have a, an unfortunate history of using the Bible to justify our own violence rather than to critique our own violence. Mm. Um, violence is such a common theme through the Bible because it's one of the very primary problems the Bible is addressing. Uh, but it does it in very creative ways. And because we're already prone to want to embrace the idea of redemptive violence, we, we don't allow the story to really say what it wants to say, but we simply see, oh, there, I, I must be allowed to use violence because it's in the Bible. Hmm. Rather than what the Bible is really doing is showing you the problem of violence, not how it's a solution. Yeah. yeah. If your heart wants beauty, you can find a way to bi biblically back that. If, yeah. And if your heart wants a battle, you can find a way to biblically back the battle. The Bible sometimes acts as a Rorschach test, hmm. uh, revealing more about ourselves than about God. Because, <laughs> wow. I mean, don't people understand by now that you can make the Bible do what you want it to do? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I challenge people. I say, look, if that's what you want to do, if you still want to be in charge, you just come to me and you tell me. You say, okay, here's what I want to believe theologically, politically, socially, culturally. Just write them down. Just write down. I, I want to be a communist. I want to be a capitalist. It doesn't matter. Pick either. Just write them down, and then give me five minutes, and I will give you your verses to prove that you're right. <laughs> yeah. But you see what you've done. You've made the Bible do your bidding. Uh, and you, you, can, you can make the Bible roll over and fetch and stand on its hind legs and you know do tricks for you. But that's when you have become in charge of the text rather than submitting yourself to the text and let it work in you and form you. 
And I, and I mean, I can't say enough about this concept of the grain of love, like to lay that question over the text, where's the yeah. grain of love here? Um, that in itself is going to be a massive shift. Um, and, and is a question I'm going to ask myself every, every time I approach the text, where, where do I find, where do I see the grain of love in these words? In the long run, you won't go wrong doing that, Ashton. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So I want to I want to read um, one of these last words where you kind of like just put a bow on this, um, and you write uh, that we are hesitant to believe that the deepest essence of God's being is co-suffering, self-giving, and never-ending love. Yet this seemingly inconceivable truth about the love of God is the pinnacle of scriptural revelation. Walk with me on that. Well, I like it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like high-fiving through the phone. Look, the, the Bible is not flat terrain. Mm. Um, the Bible says, don't eat shrimp. Uh, the Bible says, God is love. Let's go. I don't see those as equal yeah. statements. I see one is now obsolete, serving some purpose in a Bronze Age uh, tribal people in their infancy of coming to understand the living God. The other I see as one of the great peaks of Scripture. When John dares to say in the fourth chapter of his first epistle, and he dares to say it twice, yeah. God is love. Yeah. I, I think there's no way that John isn't aware that he's making a very daring move. Yeah. But he dares to make it. And these become... These two statements, God is love, God is love, becomes really a landmark in Scripture. It becomes a way that we understand the rest of the text. It becomes the high point that we climb up to and say, all right, I'm going to understand Leviticus. I'm going to understand Joshua. I'm going to understand the book of Revelation in the light of this great peak. The other place that we might think about centering our reading, and I think this is very legitimate, all right, let's make Christ the center of the Word of God, for Christ is the Word of God. He is the Word made flesh. Let's make his defining moment Christ upon the cross, because indeed the Apostle Paul says, I desire to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Let's see that moment when Christ hangs upon the cross, his arms outstretched as if to embrace the world, and he prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's where I'm going to center my reading of the rest of text mm -hmm. so that if you go into the old testament which by the way is the jewish scriptures and you have to ask you know what is a gentile doing wandering around in the jewish text well the answer is the jewish bible is appended as a prequel to the christian canonical text because it tells us how we get to jesus because jesus was jewish but jesus then becomes my sponsor and my guide to the old testament so what I certainly do not do is run back into the... See, let's say that I, I'm reading my Bible one day, and I see Jesus at the Sermon on the Mount prohibiting the use of violence against enemies. But that challenges the whole way I understand my nationality, uh, being the citizen of a superpower, etc. And I don't like that, so what I then do is I dash back into the Old Testament, find some verses in the book of Joshua or wherever, and run back and say, well, Jesus, you couldn't have been too serious about that, because here in the Bible it says... And see, the cleverest way of all of hiding from Jesus is to use the Bible to do it. But that's a very disingenuous use of Scripture. Uh, 
No, if I'm going to go into the Old Testament, I do so with Jesus as my sponsor, my guide, and my interpreter. That's and good. that's real yeah. good. And and so if some people hear this and say, "Well, I think that grinds out," I think he has a low view of Scripture. The answer would be no. I have a high view of Christ. I have a very high view of Christ. I believe that Jesus is what God has to say. Because God could not say everything that God had to say in the form of a book. He said it in the form of a human life. I really wish that when Christians hear the phrase, Word of God, yep. their first would be Jesus, That's right. the Word made flesh. That's right. Secondly, the Bible is the Word of God. But the Bible is the Word of God in a penultimate sense, in that it is the divine testimony that points us to the true word of God, who is Jesus. What the Bible does infallibly and inerrantly is point us to Jesus. The Bible does not ask us to believe the Bible. The Bible asks us to put our faith in Jesus. And Jesus himself says this. He says this in frustration to the Pharisees. You search the scriptures because you think in them that you have eternal life, but they are that which bear witness to me, and yet you won't come to me that you might have eternal life. So when I say that Jesus is the Word of God, and the Bible is a kind of John the Baptist, you know, the, in John's prologue to his gospel, he says, there came a man sent from God whose name was John. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness to the light. Well, I would say it this way. There was a Bible. There, there was a book sent from God whose name was the Bible. It, it, was, it itself was not the light, but it came to bear witness to the light that everyone might believe through it. We believe through the Bible upon Jesus. But it, we're not called to believe in the Bible. We're called to believe in God through the text, yep. through the Bible. Yep. Wow. Well, um, man, I could do this all day. Um, <laughs> Sinners in the Hand of a Loving God. When does it come out? Where can we find it? No, it's, it's out now. Oh, it's out. It came, it's out. It came out uh, last Tuesday, August 15th. Beautiful. August 15th. Okay, so it is available yeah. now. It's out, and it's been uh, number one in theology on Amazon. All right. Kind of made me happy there when I go. saw it. There you go. So, um, well, this yeah, is the scandalous truth of the very good news. So it's out. Awesome. Well, um, on behalf of all of us, Brian, uh, thank you for your good and necessary work. Um, uh, I, I'm, this, this grain of love, we're going to carry it with us for a long time here at Let the Music Play podcast. Um, Thank you, Ashton. I like the name of your podcast too. Let the music play. You know, I'm a music guy. I love music. Well, hey, listen. It's the let the music play is another way to say the grain of love. Mm -hmm. Um, Good. And uh, so that's what we're about. Um, Love you, my friend. Super grateful for your work, and uh, hope we get to cross paths one day. Thank you, Ashton. All right, my friend. You can stream this episode and all other episodes of Let the Music Play podcast both in iTunes and at AshtonGasofson.com. If you have enjoyed these conversations and they have brought joy, peace, and resilience to your life, we ask that you would go to iTunes and leave a review. Our hope is to share these voices and conversations with as many people as we can. And by leaving a review, you will be helping this light make its way into the world. Thank you for entrusting us with your time. We know it's your most precious resource, and we are so grateful to have you join us as we do our little part in helping humanity tune up into a beautiful and lovely song. And so as you approach this week, may you pause by the organ, 
listen to the bluebirds sing. Be 